This week on the Fraternity Sorority Life podcast, we continue our April focus on learning and assessment with Annie Carlson-Welch and Ari Stillman's thoughts on the need for assessment. Assessment is a way to challenge norms toward, toward um, seeing if the learning outcomes manifest as intended. And on creative ways to get wide data about our community. We need to stop thinking of assessment in this like survey world and really start thinking that, that we do assessment every single day and we can really realize it. Hello, and welcome to the Fraternity Sorority Life podcast. I'm your host, Matt Deek, and as we continue our April month of learning, I'm excited to explore assessment with my guests for this week. Before we get to their thoughts, I wanted to start by offering my own thoughts and encouragement for assessment in our work. Obviously, you can tell I'm a fan of assessment. I guess I wouldn't be devoting an entire episode to something if I wasn't. And here's the thing, Annie and Ari are going to offer some pretty solid reasons for why assessment is important in our work, as well as new ways to possibly look at it. I wanted to offer my own additional perspective. In much of the reading I've been doing recently on organizational behavior, there's a quest to understand what happens inside the black box. This idea of a black box is the term that arose to explain the internal organizational processes that lead to an input becoming the output that we want and desire. We do a lot of correlative explaining in fraternity story life. Students come in as first years, new members, with certain mostly lower ratings on student engagement measures. Then, We assess them at the end of their time in college and say, oh, look, they got better because they were members of our organizations. But how do we know? Assessment allows us to peek inside that black box. It allows us to identify what aspects of our work and the fraternal experience are actually affecting student growth and development. Without that, we can go about our work throwing new ideas and programs into that black box and not know if they're actually having any effect on the experience. We need to understand that internal functioning, and that's what assessment can provide for us. And now, our guest for the day. Annie Carlson-Welch currently serves as Assistant Director for Assessment in Exploratory Studies at North Carolina State University. She's a retired-slash-recovering Fraternity for Life professional from both the University of Oregon and Wake Forest University, and continues to serve the field as the editor for AFA's magazine, Perspectives. Ari Stillman serves as the Director of Research and Assessment for the Association of Fraternity Story Advisors. He has a strong focus in research methodology and assessment practices, with a master's degree focusing on research and social sciences. I've had fantastic conversations with both of them over the years about assessment in our work, and I'm excited to bring you this conversation. Both of them jumped on a call to talk assessment. Well, here it is. Great to have both of y'all on the podcast. Thanks for agreeing to join me for a conversation on assessment uh, today. So I figure we'll start by maybe making a case. I'm assuming most folks probably know this, but let's talk about why assessment, let's start with the case. Why is assessment important for fraternity sorority life? So to, this is the short answer is, how do you know what you're doing is effective? That's what assessment is designed to answer. So a lot of programs and policies that we have in FSL were developed from you know, either anecdotal evidence or logical inference of some kind of plausible solution to a problem, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing so far as they are understood for what they are, which is just hypotheses. But hypotheses need to be tested. So we run into problems when we neglect to revisit hypotheses and then these kind of default into what becomes the status quo. 
So, I mean, I was thinking about this when you asked, you know, some of the questions earlier, that there are a number of parables across cultures that kind of warn of outcomes of accepting status quo uncritically. And, of course, from my own cultural background, I have one that I want to share. Um, you know, there's a Jewish parable in which a woman is cooking brisket for her newlywed husband, and she cuts off the ends of the brisket before baking it. And her husband asks, why would he do that when the ends are the tastiest part of the brisket? Hmm. And the wife explains... Well, that's the way my mother always made it, so that's how I make it. The following week, they go over to the wife's mother's house for dinner, and she cooks her famous brisket, again cutting off the ends. The woman sees this and asks her mother about the tradition of cutting off the ends before baking, and why do you do that? And the mother explains, well, that's just that's uh, the only way to get it to fit in the pan. Or, sorry, in my pan, rather. <laughs> and so there are two big takeaways from this parable that speak to why assessment is so important to fraternity sorority life. One is that given the turnover of campus-based professionals in the field and that 57% of them have five or fewer years experience, there are a lot of newcomers who are inheriting norms from their predecessors without challenging them. Assessment is a way to challenge norms toward, toward um, seeing if the learning outcomes manifest as intended so long as the assessment is conducted well, but we'll get into conducting it later. The other takeaway You'll notice that I said my pan, not the pan, is that each campus culture is different and is shaped by numerous factors that make it what it is. So what works on one campus may not work so well on another. So to continue the metaphor, everyone has a different pan. So cutting off what goes in the pan or trying to squeeze something into it may not go over so well. I like that. I like kind of the application of the metaphor. Sorry, jump in there, Annie. You're you're good. I, I love that. But the... It makes me think about a quote that I heard from Jason Bertrand at one point where Jason said, when we're doing assessment, we need to stop being lawyers and start being scientists because in the end, yep. fraternity story, like people who work with fraternity stories, for the most part, come from a fraternity story background and they use so much of their own personal experience. And just like you're saying, Ari, are transferring that to, as their professionals, to grad students and to undergrads, and it creates kind of a never-ending process of doing the same thing over and over and and then we try to defend that which mm -hmm. could be totally valid if we're actually looking at it from a scientific perspective of here is the situation i have a hypothesis now let's test it and so we tend to go about really more of a defensive way rather than an offensive way of wanting to see which is what's happening from this i would also add to it so Assessment in the higher education field in its more like modern day format really was pushed in the 80s, like late 80s and throughout the 90s. And I think when it really first started, people were like, this is just a fad. It's just a trend. I'm not really going to have to deal with it. Like, we'll, you know, this is just a cool thing right now. We'll get through it. And it's created a culture of higher ed professionals overall who really don't have an assessment background because it's never been a major focus of graduate programs, or at least of most mm -hmm. graduate programs. Right. And it, it, you know, 20 years later, it's really at that place where we kind of need to cope with the fact that it's here and it's staying and we have to use it. And so it's kind of time to start learning how to use it so we do it correctly. And so we are saying, you know what, our students are having some really effective learning and we need to show how or why that's happening and if it's not we need to change some things and be okay with that totally agree with all that absolutely yeah i think the the fascinating thing that you were referencing with the whole like scientist um 
viewpoint, I've been thinking about this a lot, that a lot of the things that we do in fraternity story life and somewhat in student affairs are very much feeling-based rather than fact-based, right? Like, I feel this way or I I experience this in my undergrad and so I want to replicate it or I'm hearing it from from students and I feel feel it right rather than knowing for sure if something is either a working b going to work or not work right like so we don't have those facts because we haven't approached things as a scientist we've approached them more as um, just the humans that we are yep absolutely absolutely whether whatever's intuitive whatever speaks to our individual experience that becomes what we project so if we can agree and hopefully, you know, I'm assuming the folks that are listening agree that we should be measuring these things. Um, last week I, or last episode, I talked with Dr. Shushak about just human learning in fraternity and sorority life and the opportunity that we have to educate students and really beyond the opportunity, the responsibility we have to educate students. But right. So how are we supposed to know if they're learning and what they're learning? And so that begs the question, you know, okay, so case for assessment made, right? You can, you can say, yes, we have, we have done that. We have accomplished that. But what are those things that we need to be measuring in fraternity story life? So I, I would just say that um, we often, I think very quickly, jump to programmatic assessment because it's really the easiest of all type of assessment. Here's a program that happens, let's say um, a leadership retreat or a one-hour program that's hosted by the veteran story community, and here's what I expect to get out of it, and now I'm going to measure did the students get that out of it. And that's that's really darn easy to do that and have a survey and check, check, we're done. Um, I would really argue we've got to get beyond those small programs because we're not looking at that in the aggregate, and we need to start looking at what is the experience that's happening, the learning that's happening as a result of being in fraternities and stories. Just like you were talking with Dr. Shishak last week, like there's learning that's happening there, so what is that so we can actually understand it more and how it's happening, and what is the overall experience that's occurring rather than just the check boxes getting done. Um, I think, you know, when I think about standards programs, for example, so many of them are operationally based, and it's wonderful that an organization can have strong operations, but if it can't have a strong experience, then what's the point of having even strong operations? And so I think we really need to get, get to this place where we're able to focus on the broader perspective of what is the experience that's occurring. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd also add to that um, that in, in considering what to measure, it's also important to consider what not to measure. And so that's this is a conversation about the the survey instrument itself. Um, so it's generally, you generally want to avoid questions that do not directly or indirectly, um, actually, so scrap that, scrap that. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to, th- let me gather my thoughts real quick. Uh, sorry, so you want to avoid questions that require a subjective answer, such as those that kind of ask for perceptions. Uh, perceptions have a use. You know, they're helpful if you're looking to understand the views of a group or if you're comparing them to some sort of standard. For instance, let's say 80% of the Greek population believes a little hazing is acceptable so long as it doesn't physically harm a new member, right? Immediately this should raise a red flag because hazing is all, is all bad, right? But this doesn't answer the question, or rather it doesn't measure, if hazing actually occurs. For all we know, 80% is acceptable 
or believe it's acceptable, but would never do it out of fear of the consequences for getting caught. So it's not really a good um, something we want to measure. A better measure would be the behaviors and the frequencies. So in this case, we could ask students how often they witnessed or enacted various types of hazing. This would actually tell us something about what really goes on during new member education, not what we might fear goes on, you know? So it's important to kind of um, stay away from those subjective questions. Another category that you know, should generally be avoided in assessment is questions that, that deal with memory because it's unreliable and reconstructive. For instance, if you were to ask any fraternity and sorority member why they joined the organization, the reasons they actually had and what became the reasons during the process and then the story they tell themselves about it after the fact could all be different. So the only reliable way to assess uh, that, if that's something you wanted to assess, is to pose the question before undergoing intake and again, if desired, you know, after completing it to see how much has changed. Yeah, I think that's kind of fascinating, right? The what should we versus the also kind of practices and, and ways to avoid things uh, Annie, when you were when you were talking about just programmatic assessments, and, and perhaps both of you can can shed some light, do you think that we tend towards those more so because they're easier for us to assess? Right, like a lot of times in a grad program, you might learn how to write a learning outcome, and so it's very easy to be like, okay, I can assess this learning outcome because I know how to do that. But then the broader scale, um, ten thousand foot assessment that we're going to touch on here in a little bit. Um, is pro- might be a little bit beyond somebody's comfort level. Would that be a fair assessment or a fair I thought? Absolutely. And I, absolutely. I think um, I know we're, we'll talk about strategies um, in a little bit as well, but I think when you look at an individual program and measuring, okay, three outcomes, let's say, for a one-hour program, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it's like, I'll just create a quick paper survey or an electronic survey, and we're so survey happy and survey friendly because it's the one thing we know how to do well. And so um, we, I think, we just rest on the the simplest form of assessment rather than thinking outside the box and thinking creatively, creatively about how we gather that information from students differently. And so, yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's it's what's easy and it's what we know. It's what we know. Yeah, and just, just to add to that, I think because campus professionals are so busy that it's just it's easy to fall back on for that same reason. You don't have to learn something new. You can you can fall back on what you know uh, rather than taking the extra time and energy to, to do something new or really consider a, a variable approach. Yeah. So Austin, it's not it's not necessarily all bad. I mean if I think about um, a a department that has an overall learning objective in um, increasing leadership capacity in their fraternity party members. That's really broad and really not a good objective, so <laughs> not a great example here. But if I'm thinking of something really broad like that, and as a fraternity party professional, I then go and implement a bunch of learning strategies to increase the leadership um, capacity of my students, and I want to measure each of those and then use all that information in an aggregate way on the back end, then programmatic assessment could be right up my alley. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that in addition to programmatic assessment, we need to really look at the broader picture, that just relying on a one-time program or even a program that might repeat every year, but it's it's just a program in its own little box, then we need to just look broader. Right. And if you're not doing recurring programs, you can't really measure 
change or how effective the mechanisms that you've introduced since learning about the insights have, how they've been effective at all. You know, the more often you do that, the more you can kind of self-assess and say, okay, this has worked, this hasn't, or here's some new issues that weren't the case before. What, what has contributed to this and what can we do to, to fix it? Yeah, so as we, you know, talking about like this whole programmatic assessment thing, the, the analogy that's spring into my mind is, you know, if I start a workout plan um, and I assess or like keep track of, did I feel good after today's workout, right? That's the very much the programmatic assessment, um, you know, is it effective, right? Like, I don't know, did I lift more today than I lifted yesterday or three days ago or whatever? But then the long term, the bird's eye piece is, you know, in three months or in a year after doing this thing, how how am I feeling? So can you chat about um, kind of the difference between micro versus macro assessments that we can and should be doing, right? So the, the micro being obviously like the programmatic, but then the macro being let's zoom out and look at the community as a whole. When you say community as a whole, do you mean just the fraternity sorority life community or the whole student body? Well, I mean, I think I would probably just be looking at in my functional area, right? Just the fraternity sorority life community. Um, but obviously, you know, certainly we could also look at the community as a whole. So um, I'll attempt to tackle this one. Um, so I think I think you're starting to get at it, Matt, with, so there's micro kind of assessments, um, we could call them, that are smaller, more programmatic based and kind of hit at what happened in this one instance. And then a macro would be something that's more systematically based, and I, I don't like to use the word system in place of community, but thinking more on the systems end of things. Right. You're looking at the broad experience happening in something bigger, so adding up all those little pieces together and what is the overall impact. I guess to go back to your workout analogy is, well, first you'd want to start with, like, why am I even working out? <laughs> what, what am I trying to accomplish by doing this workout long term? And so today, what happened? And then the next day, today, what happened? And not only what am I lifting or running or whatever, but how do I feel afterwards? Is that changing things? And then long term, you can look at, you could add those pieces together and kind of get a sense of what the trends looked like. But then you'd want to ask yourself overall, did I achieve my overall desire of what I wanted when I started working out in the first place? Like, whether that's weight loss or just to feel stronger or just a general sense of well-being. Um, and maybe then that goes into your broader feeling of like, do I feel like a better human being? Or, you know, so I think that's, I think that's what we're getting at when we're talking about macro assessment is looking at the really big picture of things and your overall objectives, your overall mission or your purpose for why your fraternity sorority life office exists and why your staff are doing the work that they're doing. Is that being achieved? And are we seeing the student learning that the institution of higher learning is expecting? Are we assisting in um, that educational process at all times and really making some headway and some difference in it? And that's really the starting point, right, is understanding what your actual objective is because we don't, if we don't know what we're measuring towards, how can we know if we are actually measuring the right information or getting the right information? Absolutely. I right. always want to start with right. the end in mind. Like, what is mm -hmm. the state of things? 
in the aftermath of your program or your experience or whatever? What what does it look like now? Well, and Ari, your thoughts? I, mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, surveys and assessment, that's to figure out the outcomes and evaluate. If you are if you want to do exploratory stuff, that's more focus groups. Um, you know, very different approaches, different methodologies for, for different desired outcomes. I think the micro is more useful to the extent that you can hone in more, you can get more specific, um, and that allows for various issues to kind of be illuminated and precipitate to the surface rather than macro, which, um, you know, by its nature, you're kind of, you know, bird's eye, as you said. Um, and so while you can get a big picture, you're not really getting a slice. And the slice, especially in a niche community like Fraternity Sorority Life, that's something that a Greek advisor um, is going to want to know so they can act on. And I guess this is the struggle, right? So I'm a, you know, sitting here, Fraternity Sorority Life professional, thinking, okay, I'm, I've got the... Um, I've got the programmatic assessment stuff down, but like I want to have more information about my community. I want to be able to advise my community, lead them better, help them, make sure that they're growing and, and developing. Where do I start? Especially, you know, if this is a very foreign concept to me, I didn't take any courses on this in, in grad school. Um, I haven't attended any like assessment conferences. I've skipped every session that Dan Bureau's ever done at the annual meeting. Um, you know, where do I, where do I start? How do I get like rolling with the macro assessment piece? So the first step I would take is, well, most universities have some sort of full-time staff or professional dedicated to institutional assessment. So whether you're familiar with assessment in the field or not, they would be a good person to consult to ask about their experiences, and especially if they've been at the university for a while, what's been done historically, what's worked, what hasn't worked, that kind of thing. Uh, if there's a budget for it, and that's a whole other conversation, there are a number of pre-developed assessments for various learning outcomes. Um, so the one that I am most fond of um, is Fraternity Sorority Experience Survey, which is offered by the Center for Fraternity and Sorority Research. And I have to disclose that I work with them, so I may be a bit biased in, in you know, discussing it. Um, but I find that they have the, the highest uh, data fidelity, which is the degree to which um, questions measure what they purport to measure. They've been vetted um, you know, through, through uh, various uh, research and survey authorities. They've been psychometric tested, and it's short. So you get you get what um, you have a higher rate of completes, which is huge because you know especially with assessment, the longer the survey is, and the lower the attention span of everyone today, um, the 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 more in danger they are of not completing with longer surveys. So um, you know there's that assessment. There's um, Sky Factor, formerly EBI. They're more of a higher education suite. They don't really um, deal specifically in fraternity sorority life. There's Unaloa as well, which I think is out of Indiana State. Um, and there's a few others, but um, it's really a matter of figuring out what are the outcomes, as Annie said, that you want to measure, and of the various uh, pre-developed surveys, if you want to go that route, which ones would best um, produce the kind of information that you want, that you need. I'll add that... Um Okay, so if you're an advisor in an office, and let's pretend that you're starting from square one with no knowledge about anything. 
right. and there's really like nothing sitting before you structurally in your department. One one thing you might want to consider in addition to what ARIA is offering is just who are we and what is our purpose? So like what is going mm -hmm. to be the mission of the department? And that that first and foremost really has to lead back to if you're part of the Division of Student Affairs or whatever other division that your mission fits within that. And that that mission probably already fits within the institutional mission. But pretty much what you need to be looking at is as a member of you know whatever structure we belong to, what slice of the pie can we be responsible for when it comes to student learning? So you, you can't do it all. And I think as fraternity sort of professionals, there's often a pressure to feel like you are an expert in everything. So this is one of those moments, like totally cool to say, you know what, I don't really know mm -hmm. assessment. So stage one. <laughs> but um, <laughs> this is an opportunity to say, it's okay that fraternity service doesn't do everything. It does a lot. And I'm not saying it doesn't, but it doesn't have to do everything. It does meet a unique subsection of student learning. And so what is that, that you as a professional in your role working with students uniquely can impact and outline what some of the major objectives are for your area then. But those need to be things you actually can impact, not things that are you know, so broad that really it, it depends on another department overseeing that or major partnerships. Um, so outlining those major objectives and determining, so how do, I, how do I achieve these? And really, so that's strategic planning 101 right there. And using your, your campus-based folks, if you have them, is definitely a great idea. If you're a, um, in a working at headquarters and you're still wanting to kind of think about how do I create an assessment plan for that as well, by all means, call up your undergraduate institution and talk to those assessment folks. Or give Ari a call and talk to him. I mean, he's employed by Sonoros to help with these kinds of things as well. Like, <laughs> there are resources out there and people who want to help to make sure we are measuring really effective things. And I like the... Yeah, the caveat. <clears throat> Go ahead, Matt, sorry. Oh, no, jump in there, Ari. I'll just add the caveat that if, if you're charged with design it with, with an assessment, whether by choice or you it's kind of been imposed on you by some higher up, if you're not familiar with assessment, um, it's far, far better to ask someone uh, for help than to dive in because a poorly constructed one is far worse than no assessment at all because a poorly constructed one can give you false insights which if acted upon can just do a lot of harm and ruin a lot of things yeah for sure absolutely totally agree with that i like that you know are you mentioned some of the pre-designed or pre-developed assessments that exist out there that some institutions are using and um, that makes life a little bit easier and then Annie, I like that you go straight to the institutional mission and the student affairs mission. And I remember, you know, one of my first roles, well, when I was at Hanover, I worked within um, both the CAS and the Faldos framework to develop a whole slew of learning outcomes for fraternity story life. And then looking back, I should have just gone and said, okay, what are our student affairs or student life learning outcomes? And how do I build off of those things? And you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with Dr. Shushak is that that's what they did at Virginia Tech, right? So Byron and the Fraternity Sorority Life Office just built their outcomes straight from the student affairs learning outcomes, and they're a com constant reflection of that, which allows for us to then demonstrate how we're contributing to the institutional mission 
in addition to helping us to run our department or run our headquarters more efficiently. So I appreciate kind of both of those different perspectives. And what's huge about that, Matt, is, you know, if you're, if you're trying to advance the desired outcomes of the university and, and student affairs in general, um, there's a higher potential there to get extra funding from higher-ups. Because right. I know a lot of fraternity sorority life budgets don't really have, you know, the, the flexibility for assessment. They, you know, they range in costs. But uh, being able to kind of demonstrate that, that those outcomes will be measured and delivered is a huge selling point in, in getting assistance. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to add maybe a specific example of where, um, why that is really important to just draw from, like how Byron did at Virginia Tech. I think about a lot of departments who, like, when charged with developing objectives, would immediately jump to, like, the basic four, as I like to call it, of just leadership, scholarship, brotherhood, sisterhood, and philanthropy, or, you know, whatever service that they tend to add in. And in the end, is that really it? And so while student learning should absolutely be happening in fraternities and sororities, I would love to engage in healthy debate around is an office of fraternity and sorority life or the staff within it truly in a place where they can impact the scholarship or the academic success of the students who are in the organizations? And so, yes, there are arguments for how we could limit certain students for getting in and provide resources, and absolutely. But is the Office of Fraternity and Sorority Life the ones that are in the unique position to help engage that? No, probably more like the academic advising office on campus or having faculty deeply engaged in the experience. That's probably where that's going to come from more than Fraternity and Sorority Life professionals who aren't experts in the academic experience of a student in class and you know what skills are needed for that but we often pick that one up as well this has to be a part of it because it's fraternity sorority life no student learning can happen outside the classroom too and is experiential in the fraternity sorority world but that doesn't mean we also wouldn't report and be excited for and hope for really strong academics yeah and i think it's funny too because you know in the student organizational realm right like they're not necessarily tasked or charged or expected to do anything to benefit organizational members academic performance Um, they're just making sure that the organization is running and that students are transitioning properly and that the out-of-classroom learning that we want to have happen through that co-curricular experience is going on and so i think that is kind of a really fascinating um dichotomy that we have going on there where fraternity sorority life professionals are almost expected to be all things to the organization when we wouldn't necessarily expect that from other student organizations on campus. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Fraternity sorority life professionals are specialists uh, to an extent. And yes, there are you know a number of transferable skills and um, competencies, as I think they call it, um, for, for various other things. But the all things to all people, it's its not feasible, it's not practical. And then there's a lot of room for partnership there, as Annie was saying, with, with people who actually are specialists. You could mine a bunch of specialists together, and you can get a really specialized, yet also very uh, multifaceted kind of um, program or instrument together. Yeah. Well, and so, so let's talk about kind of those instruments, because I've been hearing a lot of you know assessments, and no one's actually said Likert scale, so I'm going to say Likert scale. Um, you know, and talking about surveys, but 
Annie, I remember at the at the annual meeting, and I this was probably one of my favorite sessions this past year, when you were chatting about ways to do assessment beyond just distributing a survey. Because let's be real, our students get a lot of those, and so how do we how can we continue to measure? Right. So let's let's go back. Student, our our little fraternity for life professionals figured out what they want to do um, and and what their outcomes for their department and for their community are. And now they're trying to figure out how they can figure out all of that information and figure out if it's actually happening. And they don't just want to send out surveys. What are some other ways that we can get that information? Um, So I'll offer up a couple that I'm a big fan of. Um, One, you know, Dan Bureau actually, I think it was, might have even been in perspective if he didn't say it at the annual meeting. I'm, I'm blending the two together right now. But he made a comment at one point, we need to stop. No, I know it was perspective. He made the comment that we need to stop thinking of assessment in this, like, survey world and really start thinking that, that we do assessment every single day and we just mm-hmm. don't realize it. And it's mm-hmm. much easier than it seems. Yes, there's a very formalized way to do it, but assessment can also be a conversation with a chapter president. Um, that was actually one strategy that I employed frequently when I was at the University of Oregon. So when I would meet with chapter presidents, you know, whether somebody does that every month or every semester or even once a year if you've got a huge community or whenever you're doing it, we're probably meeting with chapter presidents at some point. That is an opportunity to collect information, whether it's as informal as just jotting down notes afterwards and looking at all of your notes at the end of the year among all of your presidents and looking for trends or themes and the things you're talking about, those are probably going to come to you naturally anyways as you're engaging in conversations, but we have a tendency as humans to just um, over, overly desire a certain uh, answer. And so again, approach it like a scientist and instead code your information instead. Right. Um, but you could also, without really any of your students knowing, ask them the same one, two, or three, whatever questions, and jot down the answers to those, and then you've got a ton of data based on just a couple of similar questions you're asking to every person you meet with. I think that's one just really easy way. When Dan said that, I was like, yes, we are doing assessment all the time, and we just don't even think about it because we think of assessment as really formalized. I'm a huge fan of focus groups, although they can be challenging to manage because you mm-hmm. need to be able to either record by um, an electronic recorder or hand recording, which can be really challenging. You need to really properly ask questions and facilitate a group, and you need to make sure that that group is managed properly in the process, too. Um, but focus groups are phenomenal. We have um, a process that I use here in academic advising and so I know immediately most people would be like nope that's not going to be applicable to me but hear me out because I think that there are a lot of communities now that have um, classes that are focused on fraternity and sorority development or even um, like recruitment counselor development or whatever there's a lot of campuses now that have credit bearing courses for those um, for those right. experiences which is incredible so what an opportunity to um, use all of the assignments and the tests as all of your assessments. Like you've got all the answers in the world right there of how students either are experiencing something or knowing something or you know what have you in the myriad of verbs you could use there. 
but you've got a lot of data at your hands there. If you are a campus that has a class, you could also look at something of your headquarters like uh, a new member program. If there are reflection opportunities in that, reflection is a great way to collect assessment data, um, recognizing that there needs to also be confidentiality maintained and you need to look at the overall broad trends and topics that you're seeing versus just you know sharing one person's thing. But that being accounted for, there's a lot of data that exists in the things we're already doing. Yeah, totally agree. There's, I mean, there's a lot of ways to to do assessment. I think, um, not just because of what Annie said about people not realizing that what they're doing is in fact assessment, assessment, but any kind of intentional effort, like focus groups or any kind of qualitative methodology, that is more time consuming than something quantitative like a survey, um, which you know could feel like okay, I'm just going to put this out there and then I'll get the responses and look at it and be done with it. It seems like it's a much um, lower time commitment. I think the other reason why um, quantitative or survey assessment is is risen in prominence uh, not just because of um, the impetus in the 80s with the need to kind of prove things but um, people like statistics they like numbers and especially if you are accountable to a higher uh, office of some kind it's a lot more convincing and compelling to say hear what the numbers say uh, rather than saying, well, I interpreted this or that, and and you know, it seems it seems more robust to have the the numbers for in front of you. Yeah, but I, you know, I think there's that mixture, right? Like, you know, the numbers can can tell us only so much, and and there's a little bit of subjectivity too with that, right? Like, right. what I might think, I strongly agree that, um, you know, a a program helped with my leadership development or that I became a stronger leader because of uh, my service in my organization. But the story behind how I got there or how I actually exhibit that and exemplify that, you know, that qualitative piece helps to kind of explain really where that came from. And if it was a factor, you know, if the office was a factor, if it was just kind of going through and, and experiencing the entire thing, right? So how much of a role did the Fraternity for Life professional play in that? But I think you're dead on, Ari, there with the, you know, qualitative research takes a lot more time, right? Like a focus group, I don't know. Um, and you probably do these more frequently, but, I mean, we're talking at least an hour for the focus group and then however much longer you take to code the information afterwards when, you know, yeah, I could send out a survey and just get some pretty quick responses. Um, but, you know, which one's going to provide us with richer data? Uh, and so, you know, making sure at the end of the day that we have all the data we, we need um, and or want to make effective decisions about how to move our, our community, our office, our headquarters staff forward. Well, rich, rich data generally comes more from the qualitative although it really depends on um, you know, what's being asked and what we need to prove. The real issue is how the questions are being framed. Um, you know, it's, so, it's so easy to ask leading questions or include leading categories, which is ba it's basically confirmation bias. It makes sure that who's ever conducting the assessment is going to get the results <clears throat> that they want to see. And so the students seeing it, let's say they see five categories and four of them seem to be emphasizing one thing and one is the other, that clearly communicates to them that, well, there's a right answer and a wrong answer, and they're naturally going to opt for the right one, well, unless they're kind of rebellious. Um, <laughs> but but there's, there's, there's so many issues with 
the construction of the instrument itself, the wording of the questions, how they're clustered. It's such a it's such a precise art that um, it's like you can't jump into it willy nilly. You know, you have to be very deliberate in in how they're framed in order to get the kind of data fidelity that you want. Totally agree with that. We actually, um, my assessment team that I oversee in our department, we were about to do some focus groups last week and just canceled them because we were like, we are not at a place where we feel comfortable with the strength of our questions and our readiness to ask them and to make sure that we're not going to lead people down the path that we want to see. And we felt so uncomfortable that we were like, nope, stopping, done. So focus groups, you're totally correct. They take a lot of time to conceptualize um, and may not be the best option. I'll talk out there too in, in uh, the spirit of being creative that remember that if you're on a campus that has graduate students, then you likely have some students who are willing to work for cheap and would be willing to um, transcribe things for you if you do need to do things verbally or who'd be willing to code for you. Um, undergrads often too, especially those who are in statistics programs, they can be useful for this. You just have to make sure what information you're giving them is not inappropriate again and doesn't have people's names all over it or any identifying um, factors on that data. Um, and then also thinking about different um, programs. So for example, here at NC State, I'm quite lucky to have um, a big graduate program in statistics where they are also trying to partner because they have to do major research and they want to partner with departments around campus to conduct their research for them for absolutely free. So if you're at a campus where you are lucky enough to be at a, you know, a large research institution, or maybe even a small research institution, but students are looking for those experiences, it's just trying to also connect with them and find out who those are, and overcoming the fear of probably contacting a college dean or um, an academic advisor within the college to try to find those students. But I would say be creative with the resources you have, because you don't have to do it all yourself either. Right, and we don't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel, not reinvent the wheel, but just be masters of everything. You know, I think about, um, you know, how fortunate I think we are in the field to have somebody that is as quantitatively nerdy as Josh Schutz, right? Um, Dr. Josh Schutz, um, you know, who he did, right? Like he studied research methods and methodology and how we're and the, the statistical processes and so finding those students on your campus can really help you out, or finding even those professionals on your campus can help you out so you don't have to sit and, and learn and study that because, honestly, we don't necessarily always have the time to accomplish that. So I'm curious, you know, one of the things that, you know, I know that I experience and that I think probably is probably more the norm for um, fraternity story life professionals than we would want to admit is that we really don't think about assessment until you know the end of the year report is due to our department and then we're like oh let's pull all of the stuff out of the woodwork and throw it into a, like a file and send it their way and so really we're not doing continual assessment and it's really not on the brain constantly how can professionals make this an ongoing process instead of just a oh, crap, i got to do this at the end of the year. Plan ahead. It's as simple as that. Um, you know, I think part of the issue is, is turnover. I know that 
the average length of time in a given position in fraternity sorority life is 3.3 years. Um, so, you know, things are obviously lost when people leave and, and, um, and not everything is, is transitioned. But um, planning ahead, you know, working with other offices to make sure that something stays in place. It's in part with it uh, takes part of the strategic plan for the for the office. I mean, ideally, a community-wide assessment should be conducted every three to four years to account for you know cultural shift in the student body, and this will help uh, fraternity sorority life professionals notice trends over time, as well as determine if efforts that they've introduced to address issues that revealed from previous assessment have been effective or not. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would add if in the world of making it simpler, if it's possible to add or block off, you know, half an hour every week or an hour every week where I'm going to focus on assessment or whether that's actually looking at data or just making sure you're in a good place with it. Either way, like maybe finding time to set aside for yourself. If I think if, if you are gifted to have a large fraternity and story staff, or at least maybe larger than one, um, <laughs> put it in somebody's job description and then the supervisor should be checking in with them. How are we doing in this area that's a part of your actual job? I mean, for me, it, where where I am right now, it's 50% of my job minimum. And so when I'm in my evaluation, it's that is the topic is, you know, how where are we right now? How is that coming up? And granted, it's also in my job title. So that's helpful as well. But I mean, making sure that somebody is charged to oversee it can really help minimize the stress on everybody else thinking about it and then nobody doing it. So really pushing somebody in that mm-hmm. area and then seeking staff who have skills in that is important as well. I know at my alma mater they had a full-time, I should say full-time, it was part-time, I don't remember, but it was a graduate position that was purely dedicated just to assessment of the fraternity sorority community. So I know, you know, if any said grad students could be cheaper labor, even though it's not, you know, coding, so to speak, which is even cheaper. But um, if there's a budget for it, that's certainly a way to kind of incorporate that into the repertoire of the office and make sure it doesn't get, you know, swept under the rug or, you know, left in a, a box to collect dust. Yeah, and I like this idea of both prioritization and and intentionality, right? So making it somebody's responsibility and making it a, a part of just the, the culture within the office. You know, if nobody cares and if we're not actually talking about assessment ever at the staff meeting or during one-on-ones or at end-of-the-year evaluations, well, then it's we, we're showing that it's not a priority. And then why would we expect people to be intentional with what they're doing? But in order to make sure that we're not just bouncing around and, and all of a sudden trying to pick it all up at the end of the year, being intentional and, and focusing in on it more than just a little bit. And, and Ari, you, you hit on exactly what I was going to jump to next saying talking about just all the data sitting in a box and I think you know that's the that's the worst thing right like we do this assessment we you know let's just say we send out a bunch of survey data even and now we have it and it's just sitting in a folder and no one's done anything with it what do we do with all of this data that we can get from assessment like what's the point wait well, you, you got to look at it first, right? right. Um, and it, it, I mean, that, that, that's the first step, you know, just put it in front of you and, and being aware that you have it. Uh, second step is assessing, no pun intended. You know, are you, do you know how to interpret it? Do you know how to make sense of what the data says? If not, enlist someone else who does. Then apply it as well as, well as you can within, you know, the um, progr- programs that are going on on campus or things you want to introduce. 
uh, ask questions, of course, to clarify things. And the other big thing is share it. Share it with other with peers in similar positions. You know, if, if as long as that's amenable and it's not some sort of IRB protected thing, um, share it to see about commonalities to kind of discuss. Well, what did you do with this? I had similar results, et cetera, et cetera, and develop a kind of best practice discourse. Um, that's that's huge. The only thing you really shouldn't do is sit on it because nothing's going to happen then. With the sharing thing, that's you know I'm. So being at Penn State and being part of the Big Ten and having our advisors conference coming up, I'm real excited to kind of hear the results of the FSES that we've kind of got going on throughout the entire conference, Penn State excluded, sadly. Yeah, um, I just wish Penn State was doing it. Hey, I tried, Ari. I tried. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I love that not just keeping it internal, but also sharing it with like peer institutions or... Um, you know, aspirant institutions and kind of sharing around to see how could you improve and how can you help other people and see really how either alike or different we really are in the fraternal world. Annie, what else can we do with the data? Well, I'll share a fun little story about the situation to you. When I, um, I developed my assessment passion when I was at Oregon and when I left there, I went to Wake Forest. Um, it was probably like my first week on the job. I was introduced to the um, file cabinet that housed the EBI binders. And uh, so my entire background before Wake Forest was uh, public schools, you know, where money and funding is so hard to come by. And here's this whole cabinet filled with binders for because they, at least at that time, I don't think that Tim Wilkinson's still doing this, but I don't know, maybe he did. So, hey, shout out to Tim right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but... <laughs> Every single year they were doing EBI for those students. So talk about some over-assessment happening. And then they would get the report back, which at that time, I don't know if it has changed, but it comes in like a three or four inch binder. I mean, it is enormous report. And it's super overwhelming. And it would get put in that file cabinet and the door would get closed and nothing would ever be used. So when it opened, Mm -hmm. all I saw was dollar signs. Like this is an absolute waste of the money that students are investing in their education. And if you're a state-supported institution, a waste of state dollars that are being spent in your department. Like, So for me, I was like, this is a resource issue, part one. <laughs> part two is, now, if we're, con- if we're having programs that are continually operating every year, and we're never looking at what impact is happening from those, then how in the world are we know like are we making any changes and if we're making changes is it just because it sounds like fun or are do we actually have something to back that because right here within these binders is the reason why we would want to make some changes or maybe not or say hey we're doing everything perfect um so really like i i see those stacks of surveys sitting around or the giant file on you know the shared drive that nobody ever wants to open and is terrified of as just an absolute waste of resources so like Mm -hmm. at least look at it and then just go okay so what now so what recommendations do we have i one of the things i love about the work that i'm doing here at nc state is i do collect data continually and am charged with looking at that data continually and reporting on it continually but i also get the fun job and i see it as fun because it's my way of feeling like I get to contribute to how our department functions outside of serving on our leadership team. But I'm the one that with my team goes through the data and makes recommendations for what we need to do moving forward. And for me to like 
work with our team and create that list feels like here's our suggestions and here's all of our reasons for backing it and so here you go so if you're somebody who has a lot of opinions and wants to make a lot of change and difference that is your absolute number one way into doing it and feeling like you have a say and a voice in it as well and you actually can back it with a lot more than well what i've experienced over the past year or this one time or this one student that i work with yep you know your your stuff has a lot more strength and also when done really well can shoot up through the administration and just like Ari said get you a lot more dollars get you more support um even if that is just a little bit more love like hey we just value fraternity sorority life a little bit more i mean i think we would all love to hear that more often than we hear it Mm-hmm. yeah snaps yeah no those are those are both really good thoughts on on what to do with the <laughs> the binders full of numbers i suppose um so I really I want to thank both of y'all for for sharing your just your thoughts and I'll add some I'll put some contact information for both of you up on the uh, the notes page for for this podcast but I wanted to close out by allowing y'all to offer any final thoughts you had about assessment in fraternity sorority life just some final thoughts for our listeners I'll just say that if you're concerned about assessment if it's not something that you have much experience in. Uh, talk to the VPSA at your institution or executive director, depending on the kind of institution, or whatever senior administrator, because chances are they're going to get the big picture, understand the value of assessment. And people in that position who understand the value and kind of have some sway, like I said before, can also help finance it as well if budgets are an issue. So, so that's certainly huge, is, is don't be afraid to reach out and ask questions. And on that same note, um, I mean, my position is dedicated to helping with research and assessment, so I'm also happy to answer questions and guide the process as well. I think my final thought would just be, um, you know, we're really good at creating barriers for ourselves so that we don't have to do the work that doesn't seem like we would really love. Um, I'm not saying that everybody would love assessment because I totally understand that they wouldn't, but um, I think we create false barriers often, and so I would encourage anybody who's like, you know what, assessment really isn't my thing, and I don't really care to make it my thing, to just go ahead and list out what are the barriers that are preventing it from being your thing. And are there ways to knock down those barriers so that it does, if it's not your thing, cool, but so that it doesn't hinder the advancement of student learning in your area? I mean, in the end, you're ultimately responsible as a fraternity professional for assisting students in their learning experience on a college campus through the vehicle of fraternity and story. And so you've got to be able to show how you're doing that. And I would just say, you know, find the ways to just knock those barriers down so it doesn't keep you from being engaged in that way. On that same note, sorry to tack on to this, I was just reading in the book uh, The Load Rest Traveled by Scott Peck this past week about the exact um, topic about people who aren't open to the challenge for various, you know, things that they're afraid of. And it's so important to, to what you said, Annie, is to be aware of those things, to take an assessment of those, not like some sort of, like a formal assessment, but just a self-assessment. Um, and ask those, ask those questions, you know, what is preventing me from doing this? Uh, is this something that uh, would be beneficial? And if it is, and, and I feel some sort of obstacle, how can I overcome this? Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you both again for just sharing your thoughts. And, you know, I know that I have learned a lot from just conversations and sessions that I've had um, with both of you and, and certainly with some other folks in the field, too. So, 
you know, my final thought is just to encourage people to continue to seek out those resources because at the end of the day, we need to be able to know if students are learning to truly continue our work and role as educators. So again, thank you both very much. Um, and I hope that you guys finish out this semester and, and year strong. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. This was great. So that's our episode for the day. For some further reading, I highly encourage the book Leading Assessment for Student Success. And as always, if you have thoughts, comments, or questions, hit me up on Twitter, at Matt D, or on iTunes or the blog. Until next time, stay curious.